I need tea. Larry, be a dear and bring me some tea. out there. Please, stop looking out the window and bring me my tea. Larry? Larry! What do you suppose that is? I don't know. What does it mean? Would you get that deal? It's big. Madam, there's someone here to see you. Allow us to introduce ourselves. We're neighbors. We moved in down the street. Some say we're the most delightful bunch of fellows you'll ever want to meet. And if you have a moment to spare, kind lady with beauty so Rare. We'd like to take a minute or two on a topic of interest to you. We represent the Stuff Mart, an enormous land of goodies. Would you mind if we stepped in, please? Well, I... And as associates of the Stuff Mart, it looks like you could use some stuff. Oh, yes, yes. Why, I was just saying that... I pray that you won't take this wrong, my dear, but my initial observation is as follows. The criminal responsible for this decor really should be hanging from the gallows. We represent the Stuff Mart. A magic land of retail. Would you care to see what's on sale? <laughs> then as a customer of the Stuff Mart, get ready for some real nice stuff. Hey, Costco's open now. <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Our very own Stuff Mart right down the road. Just in time, too. Just in time for Thanksgiving and Christmas and... It's great. I'm not going to spend our time uh, bashing Costco. In fact, I'm really grateful for our new neighbors at Costco. I'm, I'm going to tell you why. We have our own food pantry here at Hope Ankeny called The Cupboard. And uh, our cupboard coordinator, Tim McGrath, actually got a hold of our new Costco down the street. And we already developed a, a, a food rescue relationship with them. So Costco is donating their leftover food at the end of every week to our food pantry. So they've been incredibly generous neighbors. And um, we're really grateful for them. I don't think the same thing could be said for Stuff Mart with Madam Blueberry in this uh, older VeggieTales movie. VeggieTales, if you haven't ever seen it before, it was more popular longer ago than I'm willing to admit. But Stuff Mart moves into town at just the right time because Madam Blueberry has been looking around at all of her neighbors, the things that they have. You know, maybe the, the decorations that they put up yesterday for Christmas or uh, the things that are parked in the neighbor's driveway. And she thinks, if I just had that thing, then I would be happy too. I need what they have in order to make me happy. So Stuff Mart says, well, yes, of course you do. Come right in. 
We're finishing a message series that we've been in for the last couple of months, Ten Commandments in Nine Weeks. Today is the last day. We're focusing on the final commandments of this list from Exodus chapter 20. This is also our first weekend of Advent, so as you can see, we're definitely uh, getting into it. Advent on the church calendar every year. We don't just celebrate one day of Christmas. We look forward to it the entire month of December. So every weekend coming up in the month of December, we have great worship opportunities for you. Um, Every weekend has something different, something unique. You're invited to come back, invite your friends and family. And then, of course, culminating, Christmas Eve services. We have 10 services planned starting on the 21st through the 24th. So hopefully there's a time that you can find to worship on Christmas Eve with us here at Hope. And it's especially fitting, I think, at this time of year that we should be focused on this final commandment of not coveting, not wanting what other people want, because this is the season, not on our church calendar, but in our cultural calendar, where we become consumed by consumerism. I know for myself, I feel the same tension every single year during this season when I know what Christmas is really about. You know, I, I know what we're meant to worship at Christmas time, but I feel the tension of what our culture expects and, and, and this consumerism that we are expected to buy into literally as a part of this culture. So it's a really good time for us to focus on why this command shows up. In scripture, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's spouse or slave, man or woman or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is an extraordinary command. If you take a step back and and think about every single thing that we've looked at over the last number of weeks, all the commandments and how this one fits in, because almost every single other one of the commandments are about your actions, the things that you should do or not do. You know, don't lie or steal, don't, don't cheat, don't, don't uh, covet, or, or I'm sorry, don't, uh, don't kill. But here in this final commandment, we get something that doesn't have anything to do with your actions. It has everything to do with your interior life, the things that you think about, the things that you desire, the things that you feel on the inside. Because we've already had a command about stealing, right? This isn't about stealing anything. This is simply the command about wanting what other people already have. In fact, it's so amazing that our our Bible reading for today, Romans chapter 7, the writer of the book of Romans, he says, "I, I really didn't see that coming. I would not have realized that coveting was a sin until God pointed it out. And now that he has pointed it out, it says in Romans 7, I can see how disruptive that is to my life wanting the things that other people have, whatever it is, whether it's material possessions or or status or, or relationships, wanting something that other people have causes tremendous problems. But it, it, it feels a little bit anticlimactic, doesn't it? I mean, this is the very last word of the Ten Commandments. And it's not some big action. It's, it's about your thought life, your interior life. It doesn't feel like we would, if we were building a list of instructions, what would we put at the very end? That's, that's more of how, you know, the difference between a Western understanding of storytelling, how we tell stories in our culture, how we give instructions in our culture. So there's a Western modern model of telling stories and giving instructions. And, and that's different, very different from a, a Hebrew way of storytelling, a, a, an Eastern way of giving instructions. There's a difference. Our cultures are quite different. Our culture, when we tell stories, when we give instructions, we are very linear. We want to get from point A to point B. In fact, I think if our, if our culture had a shape, it would be a straight line. We want to get from here to there. And usually, 
when we tell a story or we give instructions, we, we build from one to the other. We start small, we grow, we get, we get bigger, you know, and if we're really doing our job well, you know, by the time we get to this, this grand finale at the very end, we, we finish on a high note and everybody stands up and cheers like you're going to do at the end of this sermon because I did such a good job. I'm really excited about that. I've been looking forward to it all day for the 11 o'clock service and the applause I'm going to get because we did such a great job. That's how we tell stories. We, we end on the high note. And that's kind of how we give instructions too. So maybe a, a silly example, let's say um, I'm going to leave town for, for a bit and you have agreed to take care of our family's cat. And, and thank you, that's a very important job. And, and so I'm going to give you instructions about how to take care of, of our cat. And I'll start pretty small, the not so important stuff, you know, make sure you, you pet her, play with her, tell her she's a good kitty. Uh, it's important, but not as important as, you know, make sure she has enough food and water. This is how much food and water... And as I grow in importance, and whatever you do, make sure she doesn't get out of the house because you'll never find her again, right? And that's how we kind of give instructions. We, we end on the high note. We, the most important thing, we tend to put at the very end. So what if we were to reorder the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 more in the way that we think about things? How, how would we order that list? I mean, I don't think coveting would even make the list in our culture. In fact, we kind of encourage the opposite. As a culture, we sort of get by on encouraging us to keep up with other people by comparing ourselves with what other people have and who they are. But, you know, kind of start small. Uh, the, 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 the lesser things, you know, I don't know if rest would make the list either, but um, adultery, you know, don't do that. Um, lying, I don't know, maybe not. Stealing, that gets pretty bad. But whatever you do, don't kill anyone. That might be the, the, the pinnacle of our ethics as a society. The things that get politicked the most, debated, argued, life. You know, don't, don't kill. That might be where we end if we were to write this list. Whatever you do. I'm not perfect, but at least I haven't killed anyone. So why does God choose to end his list with don't covet, don't want the things that other people have? And again, this gets us to the difference between how our culture tells stories in a linear way, and how, how Hebrew-speaking cultures, even today, and, and more Eastern cultures, how they tell stories and give instructions. Biblical scholars and theologians talk about this, and, and it's called Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew parallelism, I, I could talk, I could, speak, I, I could do a whole sermon on this, um, but then we wouldn't need that leftover turkey to get us to our nap. We'd just be there. But once you see Hebrew parallelism, you, you, you see it all over the Bible. It's everywhere. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Jesus uses this so much. Because what, what Hebrew parallelism is trying to do, it's not trying to build up to a, a climactic finish. It's actually trying to complete a picture. It's trying to, if, if our culture tells things in a straight line from point A to point B, what parallelism is trying to do is tell you how the end connects to the beginning. How the complete circle comes into completion for, for your understanding of what it means to, to live a life full and abundant following God. So what, what the Ten Commandments is trying to do is help you understand how the entire thing isn't just a straight line of, of ethics to uphold or, or moral decisions to make, building one after the other. It's helping you understand how loving God is related to how you treat the people around you. Because the only other commandment in the Ten Commandments that isn't about your actions is the very first commandment. The first and the last commandment are the two 
that have nothing to do with your actions at all, but only your thoughts and your beliefs and your feelings. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, God says. That's the starting place. He gets, he gets to how you worship him, the things that you can do to maintain that, but the starting place is what you believe. Is God God for you? And then he moves through this circle of understanding to how that finishes is the way that you love your neighbor. And it all ties in together, that the way that we love our neighbor is going to impact the way that we love God. And the way that we love God is going to impact the way that we love our neighbor. The word neighbor only shows up in the last two commandments. The the ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's interesting. And then don't covet your neighbor. Bearing false witness is different than lying. We already had a commandment about not lying. But bearing false witness against your neighbor, if your neighbor is accused of something and you know that they're innocent, it's up to you, God says, to defend the innocent. And not to go out of your way to accuse a neighbor falsely. And then not coveting your neighbor is about the way that you love. Because because if you are jealous of something that your neighbor has, whether it's a possession or a position, there's no room in that relationship left for love. You cannot love somebody you're jealous of. There's no room in that relationship. Because if I'm only looking at my neighbor and I'm equating them with their stuff, then I don't see them as a person anymore. I just see them as the things that they have that I want. And what God wants us to see is how this whole complete picture is tied in together. Jesus actually upholds this. There's a moment when Jesus is being asked, he, a religious leader in Matthew 22 asks Jesus, what is the most important commandment, Jesus? He's only asking for one. What's the most important commandment? And Jesus doesn't give him one, he gives him two because Jesus is upholding this parallelism that started at the very beginning of the law in the Old Testament. So Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's that first commandment to, to, to I am the Lord. You shall have no other gods besides me. It's, it's what's going on on the inside of your life, not on the outside of your life. Jesus said God cares more about that, in fact. In uh, just a chapter before, or after this, in Matthew 23, Jesus is actually criticizing some of the religious leaders in his town, and he calls them whitewashed tombs. He said, you look great on the outside. You're keeping all the rules, these basic instructions. On the outside, you look great. All the actions are there, but what's going on on the inside of your life? Like a whitewashed tomb, are you full of death and decay? Or is there life there? God cares what's going on more on the inside of your life. That's why the most important command, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. But he doesn't stop there. He could have answered the question with just one command, but he doesn't. He said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Everything is upheld when you love God and love your neighbor. All the other rules fall into place, Jesus is saying. And you can't have one without the other. Those two things need to be interconnected. And that's why the Ten Commandments is structured the way it is. In parallelism, it can be kind of confusing because you might be reading, and this happens all the time, you might be reading a story in the Bible. 
and it'll look like, you know, this climactic moment is happening somewhere, and you think that's the end of the story, but then it just sort of kind of keeps going, and it fizzles out, and you're like, what? That, that was a terrible ending to a terrible story. Like, it was really good here, but it kind of got lost steam. What's happening is that the storyteller is trying to get you to understand how the beginning connects to the end. And so for the Ten Commandments especially is really interesting about this. Because I would argue that as the structure of the commandments are given to us in Exodus chapter 20, loving God goes all the way around until you get to this climactic moment about the Sabbath. Sabbath rest is the longest, most detailed commandment, the most often repeated one. And then we get around to how we treat other people. I think the reason why rest ends up at the climactic moment of the Ten Commandments is because if we're not doing that, if we're not taking a day a week to remind ourselves who God is and who our neighbors are, then none of this is going to work. So it builds to this moment where we realize we need that day a week to rest and remind ourselves of God so that we can continue to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And Jesus is actually quoting uh, Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a reason for that. We're going to get to that in a bit. Leviticus chapter 19 is a really important part of the Old Testament law. But I think if you were to take this, this circle that, that parallelism is really trying to illustrate and kind of turn it on its side, what you wouldn't see is a repeated cycle. We can kind of think about the commandments that way. That just every single day is the same. I got to check these boxes. That's a linear way of thinking. I need to get to the high point. I, get to, I need to uphold the most important things. I think what you'd actually see is more of a spiral. That as you live this rhythm of loving God and keeping his practices and loving your neighbor, the deeper your faith grows. The deeper your understanding of what it means to live a full and abundant life gets for you. It becomes new and rich that there's depth in following God's rhythm for your life. And loving your neighbor has everything to do with that. There's another moment when Jesus is teaching and a very wealthy man comes up to him. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, listen to that question. What must I do? We all want to know the actions. God, what, what external thing do I need to do to gain my salvation? This man asks. And so Jesus actually accommodates him. He said, well, what does the law say? Jesus said, don't, don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal. The man then says, all of these things I have done my whole life. Since I was a youth, I have done all of these things. The man is saying, I, I finished that straight line. I have built off of everything. I have kept all of these ethics and morals. I'm a very upright religious person. So Jesus smiles and he said, one thing you lack Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And it says the man left dejected because he had much wealth. Now, going and selling all that you have and giving it to the poor is not a part of the law. It's not in Hebrew scripture. That's not prescribed for everyone who follows God. So what's Jesus doing? Is he, is he changing the rules? Is he saying that this is all irrelevant? No, what Jesus is saying is you don't understand how the whole picture gets completed. You just think that, that keeping the commandments is about checking boxes, is about, is about living these ethical things from one to the next, from point A to point B. What Jesus is saying to this particular person is, what you lack is an understanding that how you love your neighbor, who has less than you, has everything to do with how you're going to love God, with your eternal relationship with God. That as you're loving God, you're going to see that I need to love my neighbor in the same way. 
So what Jesus encourages for this person, and I think it might be a good encouragement for all of us, is that a way to resist these covetous feelings that we struggle with this time of year especially, that I struggle with this time of year especially, is to practice radical generosity. The way that you can get out of a cycle where you're no longer loving your neighbor is to start giving away the abundance that you have for yourself. Now, that becomes really hard for this wealthy person. It's really hard for all of us, especially these times of years. It's really hard for us to consider how we can give away and not just accumulate more for ourselves. So practicing radical generosity is actually Jesus' encouragement for this person who is stuck, stuck in these feelings of endless desire for what other people has. Madam Blueberry is experiencing the same kinds of struggles. She's on her way to Stuff Mart, uh, and she feels like she's going to find the happiness that she's lacking by buying more things, by having the things that her neighbors have. On the way, she encounters another family. And in this encounter, she begins to reevaluate and to see things a little bit differently. Let's take a look. So there they were on their way to the stuff map when something caught Madame Blueberry's eye. Hmm? It was a little girl sitting down to her birthday dinner with her family. But they did not have very much money. Instead of a nice tree house, they had to live on the ground. And all they could afford for her birthday dinner was oatmeal and one small piece of apple pie. Surely they must be very sad to have so little, Madame Blueberry thought. But then the little girl did something that surprised her very much. I thank God for this day, for the sun in the sky, for my mom and my dad, for my piece of apple pie, for our home on the ground, for his love that's all around. That's why I say thanks every day, because a thankful heart is a happy heart. I'm glad for what I have, that's an easy way to start, for the love he listens to my prayers that's why i say thanks every day madame blueberry was confused the little girl had so little and yet she was happy madame needed to think about this for a while ah madam your kingdom awaits Maybe later. Right now, it was time to shop. So I mentioned uh, when Jesus is asked, what's the most important command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind is from Deuteronomy 6. And then love your neighbor as yourself is from Leviticus chapter 19. The reason Jesus quotes that is because the religious leader he was talking to would have known exactly what part of the law that came from. They memorized the, the Old Testament law in those days. And so what Jesus would do is he'd quote part of it because the rest they would already know. And Leviticus 19 is an amazing part of the law because it does give some examples for how we can love our neighbor as ourselves. So for this religious leader, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying, remember what it said in Leviticus 19. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of the field. Nor will you gather the gleanings of the harvest, nor will you strip the vineyards bare, nor gather in the fallen grapes. You will leave them for the poor and the stranger. It's a radical departure from how society worked then and now. Can you imagine uh, if, if you are a farmer leaving the edges of all of your fields so that the people who didn't have any food could have food to gather for themselves? And that's Jesus' way and God's way of saying, this is how you can love your neighbor as yourself, by practicing radical generosity, by, by giving out of your abundance to people who don't have much. We do that at Hope all the time, um, but especially during Advent, um, we do a couple of missions projects. You heard about the Hope-wide missions project, Homes for Hopes, Homes for Hope. But we're also here at Hope Ankeny partnering with Angel Tree, with Prison Fellowship this year. And so I've invited my friend Mark. Uh, Mark and his wife Joy have been a part of Hope Ankeny for a long time. Um, and Mark is also on staff with Prison Fellowship. So um, I wanted him to come and talk. And, and I appreciate you've done all five with me. So way to go. Um, that's a big, big ask. But uh, Mark, can you tell us about what you do and what Prison Fellowship is, our missions partner? Sure. Welcome. Good morning, church. Uh, it's a lot easier singing than talking, trust me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be on staff with Prison Fellowship, uh, but I feel more blessed that uh, Prison Fellowship is a mission partner with Lutheran Church of Hope uh, at all the campuses. And it's really cool to see how the mission, the 10 for 10 mission, Matthew 25, lines up with what we do as a ministry for Prison Fellowship. Prison Fellowship started in 1976. For those of you that are history buffs, uh, that's when Chuck Colson was in the White House. And today is the nation's largest Christian nonprofit seeking to restore those affected by crime and incarceration. My role at Prison Fellowship as a field director is to bring transformative volunteer programs to the state prisons here in Iowa. And one of those key programs is the Angel Tree program. Angel Tree offers uh, incarcerated parents a pathway, a pathway to restore and strengthen their relationships with their kids as well as with their families. And regardless of your justice position, uh, the high calling of parenthood just doesn't end at the prison gate. And ensuring that a child receives a Christmas gift can really ease the burden of a caregiver. It is in this opportunity that we can be the church. Thanks. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited, too, that uh, Prison Fellowship is a, a missions partner for all of Hope. Uh, so there are some other ministries around Hope's campuses that are doing Angel Tree, but um, we're definitely partnering pretty heavy around here, which is great. Um, so how, how does Angel Tree work specifically? How does a family get involved? Sure. So first of all, Angel Tree, it starts with the gift, but it is so much more. Usually in the summer, an incarcerated individual, depending upon the facility that they're at, all around the country, fill out an application for their family members. That application goes into Prison Fellowship and the Prison Fellowship staff work with local organizations and churches to provide that gift on behalf of the incarcerated parent to their family. Angel Tree starts with a gift, but it is so much more. Let's take a look. One point five million children have a simple wish this Christmas to feel loved and remembered. When a parent goes to prison, families are torn apart, and all too often children are left feeling lonely and ashamed. The separation can feel even worse at Christmas. With Angel Tree, you could be the hands and feet of Jesus to hurting families in your community who have a loved one behind bars. You could remind children they are never forgotten, and it starts with a gift. 
Angel Tree volunteers deliver a present, the gospel, and a personal message of love to children on behalf of their incarcerated parents. It's amazing to watch how a gift from that mom or dad can light up their child's eyes and to see the relief on the faces of caregivers. And it starts with the gift. What a testimony of God's love it is to the incarcerated parent when you provide a gift to their child in their name to close the distance between them on Christmas morning. With the help of volunteers across the country, Angel Tree has delivered more than 11 million gifts to children on behalf of their incarcerated moms and dads since 1982. It all starts with a gift. We just like to thank Angel Tree because they helped us, they connected with our dad. Thank you, Angel Tree, for doing all that you do because you don't have to do this, but you choose to do it, and I really appreciate it. Angel Tree is really making a difference in my life right now because uh, I feel like a part of my family. I would like to tell any and every volunteer from the Angel Tree program, thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for what you guys do. For you and your church, Angel Tree Christmas can begin an ongoing, life-giving relationship with prisoners' families. You can help precious children strengthen their connection with their incarcerated parent, grow in their faith, and learn that they are overcomers with great, God-given purpose. Angel Tree is important because it makes an effort to consciously include people, intentionally include people. I know it's real easy for these families to feel uh, left behind and feel like no one cares. It's again, this part of wanting to show tangible love in a way that people actually need. It's, uh, it's helping people where they are in a way that they can appreciate. Many Angel Tree churches continue connecting with children and families through year-round ministry, such as Angel Tree camping and church programs, such as Vacation Bible School and Youth Group. Thank you, Angel Tree. Thank you, Angel Tree. So this is our second year in a row partnering with Angel Tree here at Hope Ankeny. Uh, I'm looking forward to many, many more years. Can't wait until we're saying it's our 20th year in a row. Um, but second year in a row, this Doing this with my family last year changed a lot of how we approached gift giving. It really did. So uh, if somebody from our church wants to get involved this year, how do they do that? Sure. Well, this year we kind of did a little step out in faith, and we, uh, Lutheran Church of Hope Ankeny, stepped out, and we're going to sponsor 120 families, and that's over about 250 kids, which is amazing. Um, you can sponsor a family by getting your steps in, walking down the hall uh, to the commons area right after the service, and pick up a uh, sponsorship package. In that package is everything you need uh, from number one, contacting the caregiver. All the caregivers that we have have been approved and we have talked to them and they have approved for the gift to be given to their uh, child. In that packet as well, you'll have information uh, with the phone numbers of the caregivers as well as one gift per child up to $25. Uh, secondarily, we ask that you ask the caregiver and invite them to the first annual Angel Tree Party here at Lutheran Church of Hope on Saturday, December 17th from 1 to 3. Uh, there's no party like a Jesus party, and this year's it's going to be an Angel Tree Jesus party. And the importance of this is not so much for the Angel Tree family, but for you to be there as well as a sponsored family to provide that gift to the child from their incarcerated parent. And it'll be really neat to see a whole bunch of Angel Tree families together in a setting that's so loving and caring for them. 
All we ask as well is that you work with the families. If they aren't able to come to the Angel Tree Party, then work to have a agreed upon time to drop that gift off to their home prior to the holidays. Um, one thing that we've heard from last year was that experience was very, very meaningful to meet the families. And it's really what we talk about when we talk about the invitational part of the gospel, right? If you're unable to sponsor a family, uh, we have ways for you to get involved. Uh, you can uh, come to the table and sign up to be a volunteer or help with supplies for the Angel Tree Party. So Hope, I would ask today that you just prayerfully consider that and remember that this is about the kids. And it starts with a gift, but it is so much more. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Can, we, can I pray for Angel Tree? Let's pray together um, for this, this Christmas. God, thank you that you give us the ability to partner with you uh, in loving our neighbor. And that the love that we extend to our neighbor um, and the people who are in prison and their families, God, uh, is an extension of how we love you. And it's all connected together. So uh, I just thank you for that. And we, we surrender this effort to you. We ask for you to bless it, for it to cause many relationships and friendships to develop. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you're going to find Mark and Joy over in the commons. Thank you, Mark. Can we give it up for them and the work that they're doing? <clears throat> so we, we practice radical generosity as a way, again, to, to curb these feelings of, of, of uh, unwarranted desire for the things that other people have. It's one way to go about it. Another way for us to do that is by practicing radical gratitude. I don't need to tell you something you don't already know, uh, the dissonance that I think occurs every year when we reserve uh, just one day out of the calendar year for Thanksgiving, and then we immediately turn the page um, to, to being consumed by consumerism. And the tension that, feel, that we feel from uh, knowing how grateful we are for the things that we have and then buying into a, a system where we are constantly striving for more things. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago by a pastor named John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Hope is actually going to be doing a book study on this uh, sometime next year. The videos are getting done. In it, he has a chapter all about simplicity. Uh, because what he writes is that we, we feel in a hurry, not just because of the way that we spend our time, but because of the way that we spend our money, that our lives feel hurried because we are, we are trying to keep up with other people's possessions and other people's status. And so he writes this in his chapter on simplicity, shopping is now the number one leisure activity in America, usurping the place previously held by religion. Amazon is the new temple. The visa statement is the new altar. Double clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. And this is how he concludes this thought. There's a reason the only other God Jesus ever called out by name was money, because it's a bad God and a lousy religion. And that's actually true. The only other God or thing that Jesus says you can't worship besides the one true God is money. And it's quite incredible, actually, because at the time Jesus was alive, Rome was in charge of Jerusalem, was in charge of the region around Israel, had been for generations, and the Roman religion actually had over 60 gods, 60 deities, including Caesar himself. Caesar was considered to be a living God. You might not know that you know some of the names of these Roman gods, but uh, Mercury and Mars and uh, Saturn, Neptune, these are all names of Roman gods. And at no time does Jesus ever say, you can't worship both God and Jupiter. You can't worship both God and Neptune. He even says to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to render under God the things that are God's. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 on the next slide, 
It says you cannot serve, you cannot worship both God and money because he knows that that is really the God that most of us, maybe all of us, are going to be tempted to chase in our lives. That really is going to be the sticking point because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. And it really plays itself out this time of year. So just some simple, simple statistics. Uh, last year, the median household income for a family in the United States was about $1,000 a week. Right in the middle is about $1,000 a week median household income per family. On average, how much do you think we spent per person on Christmas gifts last year? It's about $1,000 on average. So we are effectively spending a week's wage just on Christmas gifts. Not, not the decorations or the food, just the presents. Now, that might seem kind of a, a narrow way to think about it. So in total, this is a little bit small on the screen, but in total over the last 20 years, the amount of sales, total sales on Christmas gifts in 2002 is about $400 billion in the United States. This year, it's going to be about a trillion dollars projected sales just on the gifts. The good news for us is that we literally do not have to buy into that culture. There's nothing that says we have to live that way. Other than feelings of trying to keep up with what other people are doing. When, when people tell me that they don't think people in America are particularly religious, uh, I disagree. You can go back one slide. Because that looks like, to me, a very strong, healthy, and growing religion. The, the religion of consumerism in our country is, is growing, and it's strong. We are worshiping money in, like, like no other time in history. That is our religion. And so for us, we have the ability to take a step back from that and to assess how are we living? Why are we trying to literally buy into that cultural understanding of what it means to have success or to have wealth, to be happy? Is this where our happiness is going to come from this year? Are we going to continue to, to buy into the tension that, yeah, I know Jesus is the reason for the season, but I'm still going to worship at the altar of my credit card bill? Now, there's a way for us to go about doing this, and St. Francis of Assisi, uh, the 12th century monk, I think provides a really good attitude that I like. So he was a monk in the 12th century. He's venerated by Catholic churches, by Protestant churches alike, because of the way that he demonstrated living a life following God, following Jesus. He was able to see how loving your neighbor connects to loving God. And the way that he went about doing that was by, by really rejecting these material things by pushing back against the spirit of consumerism and materialism. And this is what he, he encouraged all of his followers to lead a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. A cheerful, happy revolt. This amazing juxtaposition. It's not about criticizing other people. It's not about thinking badly about yourself. It's not about making fun of Costco or, uh, or yelling at Amazon or decrying all of the consumerism in our culture today. It's simply about deciding that in a cheerful, happy way, we are not going to buy in. We are going to choose something different. We're going to choose to live a way that is radically generous and radically grateful, not just one day, but every day. And that is what will change ourselves and our neighbors 
and can move us away from, even as a culture, this continual worship of more and more things. So finally, Madame Blueberry realizes this. She's able to see all of the blessings that she had. She's able to get a glimpse for what gratitude could do in her life. And she realizes that the things that she'd been chasing wasn't really going to give her the happiness that she wanted. Let's take a look. Madam, I think you're going to enjoy our next aisle. Toaster ovens. It was at this moment that Madame Blueberry had their revolutionary thought. I don't need a toaster oven. Well, of course you don't need a toaster oven. I mean, really, who needs any of this stuff? But I think we both know that you want a toaster oven. No, I don't. But at last, I think I know what I do want. What? I want what that little boy with the ball has, and what the little girl with the piece of pie has. What's that? A happy heart. A, a, a what? A happy heart. They both have happy hearts. What aisle are the happy hearts in? I'm afraid we don't have those. Suddenly, it was all becoming clear. Maybe a happy heart does not come from a store. Maybe the kids were right. Maybe a happy heart is a thankful heart. I've been so foolish. For so long, I have had so much. A roof over my head, plenty of food, good friends. But all I wanted was more, more. No more. There's a new Madame Blueberry in town, and she's going to be thankful for what she has. 